The Bold Acting Podcast is brought to you by the Bold Acting Newsletter. Sign up for free at boldacting.substack.com. Each week, I write on how to be a person and performance technique and how the two relate. It's acting-centric, but there's something in it for everyone. I'd love for you to give it a shot for free by going to boldacting.substack.com and signing up with your email address. At Bold Acting Studios, there are two new classes you can sign up for here in Toronto. One is an on-camera scene study intensive that lasts five weeks, from September 24th to October 29th. The classes run 5 to 8 p.m. Sundays at Ground Glass Casting in the Junction. Go to boldacting.com classes for more information. Starting October 2nd, there is a commercial auditioning class. I've done over 200 commercials on camera and another 100 voice commercials. I can teach you how to audition and what to do once you get the call back. Go to boldacting.com classes to register today. Hey, it's Jason, and welcome to uh, the Bold Acting Podcast for Wednesday, September 27th, 2023, episode 22, I think. I've been taking a break from obsessing about myself. Uh, Only recently did I realize that the most selfish thing that you can do for yourself is service. Service to me was always something annoying, kind of like community. I was a real late bloomer. These ideas that were bandied about, and they were just foisted upon me as important. I didn't get it. Service always sounded religious. I didn't like that. Um, There was a restaurant in North Vancouver called the Cactus Club. They're everywhere now. And its slogan was, love all, serve all. I thought that was that was a really good business idea, and then I discovered years later that it actually is um, something that an Indian guru named Baba came up with, I think, according to the internet. He died in 2011. I guess he didn't die. I guess he ascended, or whatever you call it when you're a guru, left this earthly plane. So service was just one more obligation to me, you know? There's the altruism, the chair. Oh, fuck. Does that ever sound terrible? My God, what is that? Oh, if only I edited this thing. The charity, the moral high ground of it all, which is annoying, but really, the real reason it's such a good thing to do, to serve, is that it, it, it's got to be the most selfish move out there. People that serve already know this. I didn't. I'm a late bloomer. But it's selfish to serve others because you're no longer thinking about you. For God's sake, when will it end? And that right there is a type of freedom if you're not thinking about yourself. Recently, I heard on a TED Talk, who was it? I'm going to butcher this, is that another name for God is not you. That's good, right? Another another name, another word for God is just not you. That's all it takes. There are places and institutions that facilitate this service. The aforementioned church, the food bank, a shelter, school, parenthood. But then there are other times where the service hurts you. If you're paying attention, it's the most out-of-your-head-and-in-your-body kind of presence ever. 
It's a presence that must be practiced. To do a kind of thing for the very thing you dislike. That's the hurt I'm talking about. To serve your enemies or other people's children. The homeless, a barking dog, an injured pigeon, the hoarder down the street. Look, a hoarder or a homeless person obviously isn't my enemy. But you know, when was the last time you got close to a homeless person? I mean, it's terrible to say, but... I give money to homeless people because otherwise I don't know what to do around them. I'm fr- I've talked about this before, I repeat myself. I'm fr- frustrated. I keep giving money and it, and it doesn't change anything. So I had to change my expectations. I give money to make myself feel better so I don't feel guilty or resentful. I do it for me. I do it everything for me. And I got a feeling I'm not the only one. When we first moved into Glendale, Claire was just an old lady who had a heart attack. I checked on her, brought her garbage bins down, you know, just minimum stuff. But then I discovered she was mentally ill. She was a hoarder. Towers and newspapers, mountains of plastic containers in her house, a basement full of her son's car parts. Apparently, I never got down there. A dog door in her backyard, in the back door, frequented by a family of indoor-outdoor raccoons. Ugh, my limits had been breached. I didn't hang around Claire anymore. I couldn't help. I was out of my league. Speaking of being out of my league, teaching, which I can talk about now because I've been doing it for a whole nine months. You know, I'm practically a master at this. But the difference between being a student of acting for decades and a new teacher is that it's way more fun being a teacher. It's way more fulfilling. It's way more interesting. Everything I say lays down some kind of code, you know, and it gradually concentrates. It's a language of the wisdom I think I possess. It's how I've how I've taken the experience that I can remember. And that's not discounting muscle memory. There could be things that I don't know I remember and uh, metabolizing them into useful information, a.k.a. education, for someone else. It's always a tightrope walk. Are they buying this? Am I? And then they, the students, they get up and try. They try. And it's the, the most exciting thing ever. As a student, you watch other students, not exciting all the time can be boring. As a teacher, exciting 100% of the time because they're out on that limb. And that's where everything happens. And the students get up there and they're nervous and they're young and they're the center of the attention and the object of the interrogation all at once. The spotlight, that spotlight both reveals and exposes everything. Everything. Everything is, there's two sides to everything. It's so annoying. And I keep telling them, They'll find out eventually that the trick is is to show the audience everything. That's service. Look for the embarrassing. That's service. The awkward. That's service. The shocking. The provocative. Because that's where the truth lies. And the truth connects you to others. And that's how you serve in this realm. You connect. You say stuff that people in the audience wish they could say. You feel stuff that people in the audience aren't allowed to feel. You move like 
like you move. You move like a lunatic. And people go, oh, God, I love that. I wish I could do that. Then you're in this flow. And it's glorious. Time stands still and flies by at the same time. You're traveling at the speed of the universe. You're in harmony with everything. You're not out of sync. They never ate the apple. We're just a part of the normal order of things. And it's such a relief. It's such a relief to look up from one's navel and see the sunrise. Then, suddenly, as with everything in life, as soon as a good thing happens, a bad thing follows it. Because now you've got a boundaries problem. It's like, it's like making a ton of money as an investor. You get a good exit, and all of a sudden you've got a tax problem. It's just unrelenting life, isn't it? Anyway, boundaries. I used to tell my youngest, a.k.a. 11, to get off of his older brother. He's very physical. He's, he's dominant. And he's very energetic. 13, not any of those things. He's, he's, he's quieter. Just leave me alone. I'm reading. I'm editing video. I'm staring out the window. Why do you have to attack me? You know, that kind of thing. And I would say, boundaries, 11, boundaries. I don't anymore. It's up to 13 now. You know, if he wants his parameters respected, he's got to do something. I do more harm by constantly inserting myself than if I just sit back and parent idly. I swear, I've tried both. Idle parenting is the thing. Service isn't insertion. All right, that's what missionaries do. We'll build you this hospital, but there are some strings attached. It's like buying your friend a book and then asking if they've read it yet and what did they think. Suddenly the gift transforms into yet another obligation. Were you giving them a book you like or were you demanding a book report? I can't stand for long anymore, especially on concrete. Something's happened to my body. It's falling apart. That's a boundary. I mean, it's also a limitation and a complaint. When you're an expert at these things, you can seamlessly weave them together without anyone knowing. But I'm not going to go with someone to a music festival for the weekend. That's not me. That's a boundary. I'll see that friend some other time. It doesn't have to always be on my terms, but it, it does help. I just can't stand, and I don't like camping. I know this about myself, you know? I'm not, um, I'm not really good with... Well, when they were younger, I wasn't good with other people's kids. I wasn't terrible. I just didn't like them as much as my own. I think that's everybody. Now that they're getting older, all their friends are turning into exceptional human beings, and it's so much fun, and it's so great to have people over. And we have sleepovers all the time. And we party here, and the kids are always there. And it's, anyways, I'm getting sidetracked, but it's so much better, you know? But I was never that parent that was going to take my kids and your kids to Reptile Land on a Saturday in Vaughn. I won't go to Vaughn to save your life. Do you hear me? There are limitations to me, and they are great. Now, niceness is different. 
And at a risk of repeating myself here, the difference between kindness and niceness is the former is truthful, the latter is a lie from what I can tell. Niceness is that Canadian that says sorry when trying to get past you on a busy crosswalk, but hits you in the shoulder all the same. Ulterior motives. Hidden agendas without us even knowing they're there. The, they move through the world with invisible strings attached to their good deeds. It's still all about them. You're not yet taking a break from, from staring at your own navel. You're not getting the good stuff yet. You're still making it all about you. And a controlling person doesn't realize that. Life's way easier. It's less work if you make it about somebody else. Because you've done a deep and thorough exploration on you, right? You're an expert. That's enough. Put the mirror down, Jason. You know exactly what your face looks like, every detail. Shine that light on someone else. Now, of course, there is a cult of kindness, like pretty much everything. I wasn't paying attention. Anything mindful or grateful or how every single person on earth has OCD now makes me want to hurl. I am a selfish person and lazy. I'll do anything to avoid doing something I don't want to do. But since framing kindness as a way to get out of my own way, I want to crow about it. I worry less, I natter onto myself, yes, less. I look in the mirror less. I notice more. I listen better. I smile more. I smile more because I realize I'm on my bike and the sun is out. I will smile if I'm in the car and I'll realize that I'm in the car and not having to ride my bike up this hill through all this traffic. I'll smile at home if, well, when I realize that I'm not in my car at rush hour. I'll stay late in class because people have questions about something I'm interested in and they seem to think that I have answers. I'll help a friend because for once I can be useful. I don't have many skills, nor do I own a truck or a van. I have little to offer in, in, in practical knowledge. If we want to be in the village, though, we must bring something to the table. I realized I didn't have much to offer, so now I go around looking for ways to quietly help. But I'm still a terrible person filled with judgment and impatience. I've still got a big mouth and no poker face. My ears don't work, not because I've experienced hearing loss, got that checked, but because ego can twist the words of others. Recently, this happened to me. I was haranguing a friend, my friend Mo, for what he had just said over dinner. And there were two other people there. I can't remember what it was exactly we were talking about. But two other people that were there corroborated with him, not me. And I had to sit there and I had to admit I had misheard him. I got that wrong. I don't know why, by, by way of my own bias... The alcohol? I don't know. I missed the point. That was a revelation. It was tiny, but it was meaningful. That was a truth shared among friends. That's worth its weight in gold. That was them being kind. And I should thank them for it, but I don't want to be all high maintenance and precious. Besides, it would just go to their big heads. Fuck them. They're lucky to have me. But it was still service. So maybe service is that which you are receiving and how you frame it. 
self-obsession doesn't go away altogether. But one can mitigate it. You know, you can always do better. You can always try if you want. I think it helps. And it's way more interesting than just being in a rut, really. Ruts are boring. Ruts make us feel righteous, you know? Like, I know this thing for sure. And we stop examining things. And we think we're right all the time. We never consider that our intel might be old. A wagon wheel size rut is comfortable because it's familiar. To get out of it, the initial energy uh, to begin movement and eventually get to momentum is a thousand times greater than the energy it takes to maintain, to maintain, to maintain new behavioral patterns. But soon you'll be in another rut, which is fine. It's just all ruts. It's ruts all the way down. Just to know them for what they are feels empowering. It's like when you do too many mushrooms and you think, am I ever going to come back from this? And then you do, and it's glorious. You just have to remember to stick, stick that arrow in your quiver for next time. You got through it. So it's got to be worth something, right? Metabolize that experience. Don't just experience the experience, but turn it into wisdom and then try not to scream it from the rooftops like me, you know? Just quietly be a wise person because you're not the first to figure this out, Jason. I wish we didn't have to reinvent the wheel every time, but it seems like our solipsism prevents us from learning implicitly uh, implied knowledge rather than having to go out and go through it ourselves. No, 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 I'm going to run through that burning building by myself. Just to, I know you've all said it's fire, but I got I to gotta see it to believe it, okay? The great glory of children is that it takes one's self-obsession and it puts it on the baby. You get this baby, and suddenly your, your love beam is on them. It's the same happened with the the spouse, you know, in the beginning with the love, you know, the crazy in love. Why it feels so good is that it's not about us, it's about somebody else. But then eventually your help turns toxic, as Anne Lamott says. So you have a second child to share in the brunt of their parents' love. But then they go off and become friends-ish, and they get older and leave. And then you're back to yourself again. Enter teaching. I didn't plan it this way, but this is another great benefit. Because I get to focus on others. And they're younger people. They don't have the wisdom that I do. They can't. They're young. So they can actually get something from me, you know? I'm worthwhile. They don't know how much I get out of it. Not the advertising or the hustling or the procuring of students. The sales, the social media, the photocopying. Ugh, God, it's just the worst. I can't stand building a business. I'm not into it. I'm not an entrepreneur. As soon as I can get staff to do all that stuff, I will. But the teaching, that's a great feeling. That's service I can get behind. And sure, I say stuff all the time in class. So that part is still about me, I guess. 
But then you take a break from talking and the actors come up and they take up space. They take their space. They got something to say. They become the focal point. I don't ever perform in my own class because it's not, I'm not paying. I'm not paying me. They are. That, that's not them getting their money's worth. But, but when I watch them, I do want to act so badly. You know, because their learning curve is so steep and it's so fulfilling and because of their energy and because they look like they're having so much fun. I sit back and I hope that what they're getting from me is enough. After this last class, I met an old friend at an old bar in the junction. He bought me dinner. We're two men of a certain age now. And we talk about the usual things that men and people of a certain age talk about. Our illnesses. And then we walk down memory lane. It's a short walk because we can't remember that much. I host him in my now borrowed house. I guess soon to be someone else's. Because I sold it a couple weeks ago. I make him up a bed in the suite downstairs. I make him Vietnamese coffee in the morning. Have I done enough? I want to be a part of this village. I need to make sure I'm bringing enough to my community that I'm serving my friends and my future friends. I don't want them to fire me. I don't want them to leave me here all alone. Don't tell me I have to go out onto some ice flow. You know, we'll never make it on our own. It doesn't happen. We're collaborators. You never know when you might need a friend, an acquaintance, or even a neighbor with a 30-year supply of empty yogurt containers. Each week in my classes, I get to take a vacation from myself. And it's a real honor to take it with a bunch of performers, a bunch of artists who put it all out there in service to their art. But I am still never going to go to Vaughn. Welcome to the Bold Acting Newsletter for... Oh, God, when did I write this? Sunday, September 24th, 2023. Sign up for the Bold Acting Newsletter at boldacting.substack.com. It's free. Do it now. Stop this. Press pause. I'll still be here when you come back. It's free. Unless, of course, you want to upgrade to paid. Right now, there's... um really no reason to because I don't do extra stuff but I will I will and um and then when I'm popular you'll have wished you'd got in on the ground floor as a founding member anyways that's the end of my guilt trip to live is to war with trolls Henrik Ibsen ruled by the dead we know what we like we make decisions. We like this as opposed to that. We can tell the difference between right and wrong. We're sure of things. But where did all this certainty come from? Who put this in us? The things we do unequivocally. The facts we trade in, etched in stone. 
The friends we choose, the work we make, the love we give, the what and the why and the who. The dead did it. The dead still walk among us. Just as we are in response to our childhoods, we are also the result of our ancestry. Sure, maybe we're not as religious as our four people, and we don't have 12 children, and we don't burn redheads alive anymore. We've come a long way, baby, but there are ghosts all around us, and we can't help but listen to them and call them correct. I have a thousand years of angry, marginalized, and uneducated Scots and Scotch lined up behind me, informing many of my moves. One is rage, the other is drinking and smoking, although the latter is a fond memory these days. I am frugal, I have bad skin. It's a Northern European thing. I am familiar with inclement weather. We think we have free will, but that depends on where we draw the line between ownership, that was my idea, and rental. That was my idea unless some unseen force made me do it, then it wasn't. Are our decisions truly ours? Ibsen again. But I almost think we are all of us ghosts, Pastor Manders. It is not only what we have inherited from our father and mother that walks in us. It is all sorts of dead ideas and lifeless old beliefs and so forth. They have no vitality, but they cling to us all the same. And we cannot shake them off. Whenever I take up a newspaper, I seem to see ghosts gliding between the lines. Mrs. Alving, Ghosts. The original title of the play in Danish is Gengangir, has a nice ring to it, which means the ones who return, or events that repeat themselves. We do things, but we don't examine why or if they serve. We plod along through life, unaware that our plotting is according to inheritances. I parent in reaction to how I was parented. These are low-hanging fruit, for I know well those boughs. But higher up I cannot see the branches. Which values did I get from my grandparents? What ticks have I received from their parents? And how far back can I attribute this present outcome? As Vonnegut said, we do diddly-doo diddly-doo what we must muddly-must muddly-must until we bust bodily-bust bodily-bust. Because change is scary. Because we're busy. Because this modern notion of self-improvement means we're broken. And that cannot be. We not only war with trolls, we wrestle with ghosts, whether we know it or not. A genetic defense. It's not me, it's my great-great-great-grandma that made me do it. And we spend years tracing our surnames backwards through time, looking for not only aristocracy, brilliant scandal, castles, and renown, but clues as to our own behavior. Wouldn't it be an interesting anecdote if my name meant something? I wonder if I look like any of my ancestors. Why am I the way I am? What is so unremarkable about being middle class is that it's in the middle. We can't wear proudly a rise from the bottom, nor can we quietly benefit from the rarefied air at the top. And there are just so many of us. We tell ourselves we're special, but we're not. We're a sometimes interesting conglomerate of nature and nurture. 
But if you look past the forest, you'll surely see ghosts among those trees. The revenants have glommed on to us, and we proudly, righteously play host to them, certain that we have the answers. But if we were a little more comfortable with uncertainty, I wonder if we could break some of these invisible bonds. We might gently observe old ideas and see them for what they are, lifeless operating instructions for a world that no longer exists. What new intel might come rushing in if we make room between the lines? Who knows? It could be of service. It might not be. But it's worth shining a light into those dark corners. We're guided by our ancestors' ideas without realizing it, but we do plenty to zombify ourselves. A Marvel movie to beat our senses into a pulp. The warm blue glow of a mobile phone to placate. State-sanctioned opiates to mollify. Televised sports, cannabis, Ryan Ginger's aplenty. If I can bear to change the stories I tell myself, I can look forward to some space. I think that is all. Just a less crowded field. One less phantom hanging around the kitchen that through my lonely natterings is constantly telling me how to do diddly-do, whether I like, literally like it or not. And now, some hard-won advice from two industry veterans. Hi, my name is Leonard Stanga. I'm a theater artist and actor out here in Vancouver. And I've been in the business for just about 40 years. And the advice I would give to my younger self is to be flexible in the way that you interpret success. Like a lot of people from that era, when I started out, I wanted to be an actor on the big stages. And the way I would have measured success is the bigger the stage, the greater the success. And I know that's not as common anymore, but at the time, that's what they were teaching in our post-secondary education, preparing you for a life in the existing theater ecology. And so I would say to myself, you know, if that isn't a great fit, there's all kinds of work you can be doing in the industry. There's all kinds of places for people. You don't necessarily have to achieve what you first thought of when you set out. So whatever your goals are, be flexible. Give yourself a break. There's lots of ways to work in the industry. Oh, and also morning sunlight on your eyes. I wish I'd known about that one a long time ago. That one really helps. <laughs> as soon as I listened to that, I went outside and stood in the sun. Because I don't think about that. I know how good it feels. I wonder if that, does that, um, are you allowed to wear sunglasses when that happens, Len? I don't have much to add to this excellent advice other than my version of it. When you're young, you have this idea of what success is. But then when you're old, you look back and go, man, was I ever half-baked? Any ideas I had were, well, they, were, they hadn't been fleshed out. They're, they're, they, they weren't backed up by evidence or experience. And now that you have some, you go, well, you know, if suffering is suffering, then... It doesn't matter where I am uh, on someone else's uh, yardstick that um, aligns with our capitalistic society. 
One thing I found interesting about all the lockdowns and the strikes these days is that my friends in theater were still working. Anyone who had, um, like me, who had just given up on theater and just gone for those shiny baubles in film, film and TV and commercials were decrying the state of things. And sure, I'm sure theater actors were too, but, but they were decrying it from the stage. They were still working. They were still creating and they were still earning. Great advice, Len. Thanks so much. So nice to hear your voice again. I'd love to catch up soon. Hello, everyone. My name is Kurt Evans. I am an actor and a acting coach. I've uh, been one for 25 years. And I think the advice that I'd give myself, uh, my younger self, would be uh, to diversify, to do a bunch of different stuff, um, to push myself, you know, into areas that I might not necessarily think that I would go first when I, uh, when I first began. Uh, for instance, it took me like a decade before I have a had a voice demo, um, and now voiceover is part of my yearly income. It, it equates to about a third of what I make every year. So, you know, it took me a long time to find that income stream. Um, and uh, and I think when I was young, I felt like, hey, if I get on a couple TV shows, I'm going to be able to make that into another couple TV shows and another couple, and it would be uh, maybe another movie or, you know, and it would grow naturally. And what I learned is that this is a long race and you've got, uh, you've got to have a lot of different um, pans on the fire. So, you know, go create your own projects as well, you know, and work with people that, uh, that push you, work with people that inspire you, work with people that will push you past where you think you can go, um, find those people and, uh, and, and really, uh, work to build those relationships that are going to help you, uh, fulfill the creative drive that got you into this industry in the first place. Um, yeah, young Kurt, do that more. There's plenty of ways to skin a cat. There's also plenty of reasons to ensure yourself a place in the village. you got to bring something to the table in order to generate that community. But it's the community that will save you in the dark times. Momentum is so hard to get going, and even harder to sustain. One job does not beget another necessarily, especially in this country. You can do a really great job. You can win awards. And then it can just be crickets for six months or a year. There's no rhyme or reason. There is no ladder, really. Unless you're incredibly good-looking, I guess. And even then, the looks don't last. This doesn't mean you having a plan B. I don't like plan Bs. Plan Bs are the language of parents. You know, have something to fall back on. You never want to be falling or going backwards. That's counterproductive. What's good is, is to have something, well, I don't know. I think Kurt did it really well. You know, he started teaching young. He started coaching early. He just had that in him. Leonard discovered the same thing. That's what he was talking about when he said the younger him didn't realize 
how many different paths you can take that are still art, that's still creative. It may not be the shiny, obvious one that everybody knows about, but then you find them along the way. And I think, and Len would never say this, I think why he's been particularly good at survival in this, what is a really tough industry, is that he doesn't have a lot of ego. There's something that happens when you have kids, at least it did to me, and you really have to shelve any sort of self-importance, any sort, anything that smacks of hubris, anything that is um, entitlement, you know? Recently, someone told me uh, that they wanted me to see their worth. They wanted me to see how worthwhile they were for me, how I'm benefiting from them being in my life. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to see it if you're telling me to. I think that smacks of entitlement. Hey, look at me. I am worth more than you maybe previously thought. I think the most efficacious thing to do is to find a path where you can serve the village and it serves you it provides Marley for fuck's sake I'm trying to be meaningful here you little cocksucker you know he was barking at 10.50pm last night while I was just putting my big head down to sleep and then he started up at 7am this morning I can't wait to move so I'm rambling you do something that serves you and the village and you do it quietly. And when you do things quietly and when you don't crow about it like I do all the time, you make a lot of room for other people, which is exactly what a performer does, which is the dynamic between performer and audience. When the performer stops talking, it, only then does the audience have space to laugh. Performance doesn't just mean monologues. There are plenty of times when the performer is out of the spotlight. That would have been some advice that I could have given my younger self. But would I have heard it? Thank you for listening to the Bold Acting Podcast. If you liked this episode, please share it with your friends. It's that little button up top, top right of your device, and it says share episode. Word of mouth is the best advertising around, and I appreciate your assistance in this matter. Until next time.